This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, but not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So we're going to continue this morning through the unique passages of Luke. And so in this sermon series, we're studying many of the passages Uh, that Luke included in his gospel, that no other gospel writer included in theirs. And so this morning, actually, as you notice from the reading, we're going to look at two stories uh, that include healings on the Sabbath. And they also both include uh, a debate between Jesus and uh, representatives from the most powerful Jewish religious authorities of the day. In Luke, actually, there are three such stories of Sabbath healings uh, amid uh, debate. In chapter 6, also, uh, Luke tells the story of the man uh, with the withered hand. Uh, Mark and Matthew include that story in their gospel accounts, but neither uh, Matthew nor Mark include uh, the woman of chapter 13 or the man in chapter 14 in their accounts. But uh, Luke, through his redundancy and through his repetition, Uh, He shows us the extent to which these debates were happening. This is not the same Pharisee or the same ruler synagogue or the same lawyer uh, over and over and over traveling around with Jesus, arguing with him about this topic. This is Jesus encountering this debate uh, essentially every time he does something on the Sabbath uh, to bring healing uh, to another human being. And so I'm thankful for Luke because he shows us this repetition, but also Luke shows us, uh, uh, he shows us beneath the surface of the rulers of the day and of Jesus. And he gives us a sense for the foundational perspective of their world and why they acted the way they acted. And that's going to be really informative to us when we begin to apply this text, these stories to our lives. So, So three points this morning. The ongoing debate, the fundamental perspective under each argument, and the same perspectives fleshed out in our lives now. I'm going to argue 
that we don't argue over this very often as a community. And so we need to look for these same issues fleshed out in different ways in our lives. Okay? So that's the, the, the task for this morning. So first, the ongoing debate. It's, gonna, it's really simple. It's going to sound very startling to our ears, but the debate was this. Chapter 14, verse 3. Was it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And we're like, really? They were arguing about that? Was it lawful, according to God's law, to treat someone with an illness on the Sabbath? In Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5, uh, in the Ten Commandments, God commanded his people through Moses. He says, I want you to observe the Sabbath. I want you to keep the Sabbath. Uh, on the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath day, uh, treat it as holy, treat it as separate, treat it as unique. And a major part, biblically, of observing the, sa- observing the, Sabbath, the Sabbath is to, is to not work your occupation on that day. So that's a huge part of what God Commanded. We, we heard uh, some of that in the call to worship this morning. So I'm going to show you the reasoning uh, here in a minute. But for now, just, just listen to this. The Pharisees ardently believed that, that, that it was not right to heal on the Sabbath unless the patient was in a life and death situation because they would look at the healing and they would see the healing as a healer working. And they would say, work is not allowed on the Sabbath. So in the case of the withered hand, Luke 6. In the case of a bad back, Luke 13. In the case of dropsy, Luke 14. Dropsy uh, is something we would call edema now, E-D-E-M-A. Not sure how to say that. Should have checked with one of you doctors or nurses. But it's the, it's the gathering of excess fluids in the body. Okay, And so the Pharisees look at these three cases, and, and they're like, that is not life and death. Uh, your, your healings of these people on the Lord's Sabbath day is a breaking of the law. In fact, there was one particular community, uh, a Jewish community, that was separate from the people in Jerusalem that actually taught uh, that, that a doctor could not heal on the Sabbath, even uh, in life and death situations, that, that the person should just die instead of the doctor working on that day. On the other side of the debate, Jesus taught that healings on the Sabbath were lawful. This is obviously his position. All three times he encountered illness on the Sabbath in Luke, he moved towards the person, he touched the person, he healed the person, he sent them away in newness of life, rejoicing. Uh, So Jesus' position was healings are okay. But further than that, uh, this was Jesus' take on the topic. Not simply that it's not a breaking of the Sabbath law to heal on the Sabbath, but that to not heal and to not extend mercy on the Sabbath is a breaking of the law. Look at what he says in chapter 14, verse 3. Look at his question again. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He does not say, is it wrong to heal on the Sabbath? He does not say, is it a breaking of God's law to heal on the Sabbath? He says, is it law-fulfilling? Is it law-filling to heal on the Sabbath or not? Look again at, at verse 16 of chapter 13. Listen to how he says it. Ought not this woman be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus is saying the Sabbath day is the perfect day for healing and mercy. It's not just okay with God. Uh, Jesus said this is what God wants to happen on the Sabbath. Two radically different takes on the same interaction. So let's look at the fundamental perspective that was lying underneath each argument. It's important for us to get this because I think it's going to help us to apply these stories 
to our lives. Okay, so the debate was whether or not a healing could happen. The fundamental perspective uh, under each uh, side's argument uh, can be found if you just start looking at uh, verse 10 of chapter 13. Let's work through this story together. Now, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So the synagogue was a public place of worship, a public place of community for Jews that did not live near the temple in Jerusalem. And it was Jesus' habit on the Sabbath to go to the synagogue, to participate in worship, and to teach. Verse 11, And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit or, or a disability caused by a spirit for 18 years. She, she was literally, the text says, bent doubled and could not straighten up at all. Verse 12, When Jesus saw her, he stopped teaching. He called her over. And first, he dealt with the evil spirit. He says, woman, you are freed from your disability. It says you're released from this disabling spirit. If, if you're new to the Bible, uh, it's important for you to understand that Luke, the guy who wrote this gospel, was a, phys- a physician by trade. Okay? And neither Luke nor the Bible would presume that every illness is caused by a demon. So like the, the withered hand in Luke 6, um, uh, the dropsy of Luke 14, Luke just records those simply as illnesses, but, or I should say it this way. So, while uh, in every time uh, Luke doesn't say that the illness is brought about by a demon, sometimes the illnesses have a demonic origin. And Luke just makes that clear here in how Jesus deals with this woman. Jesus says in verse 16 that Satan had this woman bound for 18 years. I mean, the imagery uh, here is vivid. He, he, is, he is telling us that this woman was doubled over, and this woman essentially had been tied in knots by Satan. It's as if she was doubled over, trying to touch her toes, and Satan wrapped chains around her that she could not break. Eighteen years. But Jesus, in verse 12, with a simple word, frees her, unties her, releases her. And then Jesus deals with the effects uh, of, of having been bent over for 18 years. He deals with the effects on her body, verse 13. And he laid his hands on her, which is how Jesus heals people. He, he speaks uh, through, to do exorcisms. He, he, he touches to heal. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But, verse 14, the ruler of the synagogue, indignant. Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And now we're going to see his perspective. We're going to look beneath the surface of this powerful Jewish leader. Why was he deeply grieved by a woman being healed? He said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. Not on the Sabbath day. This is crucial. This is critical. You have to catch this. In the exchange between one who is sick and one who heals. The synagogue ruler's focus was on the one doing the healing. He, he summarizes this amazing healing as work. There are six days in which work ought to be done. So why does the ruler of the synagogue see this interaction between Jesus and this woman not as a healing, but primarily and most importantly as work? We've said this before in the series. We'll say it again. The Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers, the most influential leaders in Israel, believed that they had to obey for God to save them. They believed that they had to get the nation to a certain level of obedience before the Messiah would come and deliver them. Their entire framework for life, 
was work, merit, achieve, accomplish. Remember, they would take God's law on how best to live as redeemed. And, and when it was too vague for their taste and when it was too vague for their ambitions, they would add laws to it. They called it the tradition of the elders or the oral law. In the oral law, the, the fence that they put up around God's law to make sure that they never got close to transgressing God's law. In the, in the oral law, there were 39 articles, 39 explanations of what was work and what wasn't work on the Sabbath. God just said, don't work. 39 articles of what constituted work. For example, the meal they were eating, chapter 14, verse 1, would have been prepared the day before. Again, most of them would have said, in life and death situations, it's okay to heal. But their paradigm for life, the underground support system of their life, was works righteousness. I have to earn God's love. I have to merit God's salvation, my obedience, and my work will make it happen. And so when this man sees a woman healed miraculously and powerfully and amazingly, he calls it work and not just a healing. He sees it as disobedience and not as righteousness. He sees it as ugly and not beautiful. But, verse 15, Jesus takes him and anyone who agrees with him to task. Look what he says. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. So so Jesus is going to argue here this is not work. He's going to argue that this was a need for mercy. Jesus is going to say, in this exchange between a man and a woman, this is not a man making a living, living. This is a woman being released to live. You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And so Jesus is calling to mind the picture of a beast of burden that had been fed grain and it is being untied from the manger and it's led to water. And and had the farmer not fed the animal, uh, drinking may not have been a big deal. But now that the animal's been at the manger and now that it's fed, its life is in danger without water. Jesus is saying, don't you all rightfully extend mercy to your animals on the Sabbath by untying them and leading them to water? So, So in the oral tradition, literally one of the 39 articles was how you water an animal. You're allowed to untie them slowly, walk them a certain distance, give them water in a trough, but never hold it in a bucket, because I guess it was just too strenuous to hold it in a bucket for long. And Jesus is saying, if that's the right decision, to extend mercy to a lesser being, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, a full-fledged member of the covenant community, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, should she not be untied from Satan's stall on the Sabbath day? Look at his argument. He's like, this is not work. This is healing. This is not achievement. This is mercy. He uses the same logic in chapter 14, verse 5. This is the man with dropsy. He says, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, which of you will not immediately pull him out? And if you would immediately, without thinking about it, administer mercy and help, how can I not extend the same to this man, this son, suffering from dropsy, when it's in my power to do so? Remember, for Jesus, this is not an exception to the law. This is the fulfillment of the law. He's not saying, I understand what the Sabbath command says, and I'm making an exception here. He's saying, I'm actually doing what the Sabbath command calls for. Think about our call to worship from Deuteronomy 5. 
Moses gives the Ten Commandments. He gives the law on, on the Sabbath. The fourth commandment, if you want to turn to your worship folder, uh, feel free to do so. We're going to talk about it for a few minutes. You, you can look there again. But very broadly, that passage tells us that Sabbath observing and Sabbath keeping is done in three ways. First, verses 13 and 14. Stop working your occupation for 24 hours and give yourself rest. Second, go to worship and remember all that God has done for you. Verse 15, this, this word remember is a, is a word for worship in the Old Testament. Remember that you were a slave, you were chained in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God delivered you from there. He loosed you from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So literally the word remember is call to your mind uh, something of the past in order to bring about a present change in feelings, thoughts, and actions. That's the definition of worship. Stop your occupation, go to worship, and third, give rest on the Sabbath to any and all to whom you have the opportunity and the power, to your son, to your daughter, to your male servant, to your female servant, to your ox and your donkey, and to any of your livestock, to the sojourner who is within your gates, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. The Sabbath day in the Old Testament, the Lord's day in the New Testament, Jesus says that's the perfect day for those with, to give healing and mercy and release and rest to those without. It's like this is not an exception to the rule. This is the rule. So the text has these two men looking at the same event. The man with a works righteousness perspective on life sees it as a violation of the Sabbath because it violates one of his rules he made up in an effort to protect the Sabbath. The other man, looking at life through the perspective of a gracious and merciful God, a God of deliverance, sees it as a fulfillment of the Sabbath because the event was based on and patterned after God's mercy, God's grace, and God's deliverance. In summary, for the Pharisees, the Sabbath was a chance to earn deliverance. But for Jesus, the Sabbath was a chance to remember God's historic deliverance. That's why he was in the synagogue. And it was a chance to show the same deliverance to others. Now, let's think about our lives. Let's think about these two perspectives on our lives. Let's think about the religious perspective. I have to work to get God's love. And, and let's think about the gospel perspective, that I'm freely given God's love by grace through Jesus. I'm going to give you two questions uh, to ponder this week, two that relate to the Sabbath, and then three questions to think about uh, this week um, uh, in, in areas in our life that go beyond the Sabbath. So I'm going to look in the text, and I'm going to think through what's going on in this Pharisee's life that's not directly connected to the Sabbath debate, and I'm going to ask us to think about those realities in our life, because again, I don't see us arguing that often over whether or not healings can happen on the Sabbath. So two questions on the Sabbath. Ponder pray dialogue this week. First, did you ever uh, realize that there are three movements to keeping and observing the Sabbath? First, stop working your occupation for 24 to 36 hours. In Jesus' day, they rested from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So in a culture without iPads and without laptops and without cell phones, they didn't just rest from 7 p.m. Saturday, uh, uh, 7 p.m. Friday to 7 p.m. Saturday. They actually rested from 7 p.m. Friday to 7 a.m. Sunday. In a world filled with technology, we can take our work with us everywhere we go, which means we work everywhere we go. Second, go to the public worship 
with a focus on remembering the gospel. Third, move out into the day looking to be the gospel to anyone in need. Rest, remember, relief. The three movements of the biblical Sabbath. Second, did you realize that it is law-fulfilling to extend mercy on the Sabbath? Now, of course, we don't fulfill the law for our own righteousness. Of course, Jesus fulfills the law for us in his life, but Jesus also fulfills the moral law in us as he sanctifies us, saves us, and changes us. Over the last month, have we done anything merciful on Sunday? Jesus is like, that's the best possible day for mercy. Rest, remember, relief. But now, beyond the Sabbath, let's think about these stories. Let's see, let's see if, if they can help us to sort of understand our fundamental perspective on life. If we look like Jesus, we're living out of the gospel. If we look like the Pharisee, we're living out of works righteousness. All right, so let's, let's ask a few questions of this text. First, what are you looking for? First, what are you looking for? There's this obvious theme that's running through these three stories where Jesus is always seeing people in need and the Jewish, relig- Jewish religious leaders are, are completely oblivious to any need because they're so busy keeping their eye on Jesus. Chapter 13, verse 11. And behold, it's, it's a grammatical interjection. Luke is saying to the reader, I want you to see, I want you to look, I want you to watch. There's a woman in the room who's been in pain and torment for 18 years. Chapter 13, verse 12, when Jesus saw her. Chapter 14, verse 2, behold, look, see, there's a man suffering from the pain and the shame of dropsy. When when your fundamental perspective on life is mercy, you're constantly on the lookout for people in need. But what is the religious leader doing? What are the religious leaders looking for? Chapter 6, verse 7, it's not in your text. The scribes and the Pharisees watched Jesus so they might have a reason to accuse him. Chapter 14, verse 1, they were watching him oh so carefully. What were they looking for? What are we looking for? Are we watching other people to see what they're doing? Or are we looking at other people trying to find need? When our fundamental perspective on life is earning God's love and salvation, we will constantly observe, observe life and we will constantly watch others to see how we compare to them. But if our fundamental perspective on life is mercy and grace, we're freed up from worrying about ourselves and worrying about what other people are doing. And we're not able to just observe life. We're actually enabled to engage life. Jesus, in chapter 13, verse 16, he actually calls for this. I'm so sad that it's lost in our, in our translations. The original Greek is so hard to translate into English. Uh, uh, all the translations except one completely skip over uh, what Jesus does. But Jesus actually tells the synagogue ruler in verse 16 to look. It literally reads this way. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, look whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed. He's like, if you'll just open your eyes and stop worrying about me and start worrying about need, it's all around you. Unrelated to the Sabbath debate, we can know if our fundamental perspective on life is works righteousness or mercy-based based on what we're looking for. Are we looking to catch others in the wrong that we might accuse them of so that we feel better about ourselves? 
Or are we so filled up with the gospel that our drive to compare and our drive to contrast ourselves with one another is decreased and our drive to see others in need is increased? Second question, how do we engage conversation and conflict? Listen, here's my statement. To the extent that our salvation and life and identity and hope and justification come from being right, to that extent... We will not directly engage conversation, and we will shut down and cut off any conversation as soon as it looks like we might be wrong. A theme in all three stories. In chapter 6, the scribes and the Pharisees refuse to say a word. Jesus tries to engage them. He wants to win them. They refuse to talk. In chapter 14, the man with dropsy, verse 4, but they remained silent. It's fascinating, actually, of all three stories, Chapter 13, verse 14 is the only time a Jewish religious leader says anything. And when he says something, he doesn't talk to Jesus. He talks to people about Jesus. He says, there are six days. Who's he talking to? There are six days in which work ought to be done. He's talking to Jesus. But Luke clearly says, the synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Again, the Sabbath debate is not a huge part of our lives, and and so we're looking at these other themes in the text and and to the extent to which we live out of works righteousness, to the extent we we live as if we have to earn God's love and salvation, uh, to, to, to that extent, we refuse to engage conflict and conversation if we think we're wrong. But if the gospel is our paradigm, if our story is that God had grace and mercy on me when I was a failure and a fool. There's little to lose in the conversation with other people. It's really not that big of a loss if I'm found out to be wrong yet again. Mark it up to another example of me being foolish. Lastly, is there an extensive practice of repentance privately and publicly in our lives? Look at verse 16 of chapter or verse 6 of chapter 14. They could not reply to these things. God heals three people. The crowds are rejoicing and celebrating. Jesus has clearly pointed out the folly and the hypocrisy and the inconsistency of their position. The only option for them is to cry uncle. The only option is to beg for mercy. The only option is to repent. But they continue on in their plot to kill Jesus if our fundamental paradigm for life is that we have to save ourselves, regardless of what we profess with our mouths and write on a piece of paper, if in our hearts our fundamental paradigm is I have to save myself, I have every motivational reason to remain stubborn and shut down and refuse to repent. But if my fundamental paradigm for life is receiving grace and mercy, then repentance, saying I'm wrong, is just embracing reality And it's the conduit through which I receive the salvation of God. So, let's conclude this way. Do you see the beauty of Jesus in these three stories? Can you see him as he sees and cares about and helps those who are hurting? He's teaching in the synagogue. He's under the scrutinizing eyes of the religious leaders who want to kill him. He's in the middle of a sermon. And he just sees a disabled woman. And because he cares, he stops what he's doing. He makes eye contact with her. He touches her with his hands. 
and he changes her life. Do you see the beauty of Jesus in these stories? He's engaging the Pharisees in conversation. He's certainly rebuking them, don't get me wrong, but he's teaching, he's inviting, he's including. Do you see the beauty of Jesus in these stories? Do you see him? Do you see his power against Satan? A simple word, and the enemy that had held this woman bound for 18 years has to let go at the simple word of Jesus. Do you see the timing of these healings? Jesus could have waited until later. I mean, after all, they weren't life and death situations, right? And look at all the trouble it caused him. And Jesus, as we know, can heal from a distance. He actually did that to the centurion's servant. He could have just thought about these people the next day and said, oh yeah, God, would you heal those people? But to Jesus, waiting one more minute was one minute too long for these people to be released from what bound them. As you know, as the story unfolds, Jesus will eventually be bound by these religious leaders. He will not be delivered from slavery. He'll be delivered over to the Romans to be crucified. He will enter into the bondage and chains of Satan and death for a time. He will absorb the wrath of God for the people he saves. This beautiful man, this righteous man, he will die in our place so that our, our paradigm, our foundational perspective for life can be mercy and grace. And to the extent we see that and to the extent we believe that, we will live our lives looking at others for needs to meet and not in how we compare. We, we will live our lives engaged in any conversation where we may be wrong because it doesn't really matter if we are wrong. And we will live a life of increasing repentance because the conduit by which God gives us the grace and the salvation we need. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do come to you now and we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that this is our paradigm uh, regardless of the extent to which we understand it uh, and the extent to which we embrace it. But if we know Jesus and trust Jesus, we thank you that this is our paradigm. This is our perspective on life. This is the foundation on which we live. Would you give us sight of what is true? Would you help us to see uh, ourselves the way you see us? Would you give us freedom from trying to make a life of it on our own and, and allow us to enjoy the life we have in Jesus? Jesus, we thank you that you went and died on the cross. And undoubtedly, some of these people who didn't believe in you later believed because they saw the beauty of your sacrifice and your life. Would you please, by your Holy Spirit, make us different, cause us to live out of the gospel and not an effort to save ourselves. In your name we pray, amen.